Do you think? I'm sorry, I'm just doing a interview um, on the uh, old Skype. Any chance you could not move the papers? Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question? Now it is in the broken time. What if I did the I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the 4-Hour Body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. As always, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, and you can find all of the links and resources from this episode, as well as every other episode, by going to fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. Spell it all out, or you can go to fourhourworkweek.com and just click on podcast. Feedback, if you have feedback, I would love your thoughts, anything at all, who you'd like to see on this show. Ping me on Twitter, at tferris, that's twitter.com forward slash T-F-E-R-R-I-S-S, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Tim Ferriss with two R's and two S's. This episode is a conversation between yours truly, Tim Ferriss, and Ed Cook. Ed Cook is a grandmaster of memory based in Britain, Great Britain, a good friend. He's made a number of appearances in The 4-Hour Chef. He helped improve my ability to memorize anything and everything. He's also very well known for coaching a writer named Joshua Foer from nothing, i.e. ground zero, to becoming U.S. national memory champion in, I believe, a year or so of time. Uh, a really astonishing feat. And we'll get into what grandmaster of memory means. This is a two-part 
episode. So you have two separate parts. They are very, very dense. They are hilarious. If you liked the Kevin Kelly episodes, the Josh Waitzkin episodes, or any episodes that are similar to those, very in-depth, wide-ranging, you are going to love this episode. I hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, here is Ed Cook. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to a special episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. I have my dear friend Ed Cook on the line. I grabbed him last minute for reasons I shall explain. And he is a grandmaster of memory, among many, many other things. At the at the ripe old age of 23 is when he turned that corner. But Ed, where are you at the moment? And, and what are you up to? So I am currently sitting in the, uh, in the office um, where I work, which is a converted Methodist chapel in Bethnal Green, London. Um, and it's Friday night at 10.15 p.m. <laughs> yeah, so like, while people with adequate social lives are currently, uh, you know, running around town and falling in love, um, yeah, I'm, I'm here and I'm trying with you, Tim. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> and I wanted to actually share with people what we just talked about doing an audio check before we began recording, where you gave the best answer I've ever heard to a very mundane question, which is, what did you ha- tell me what you had for breakfast, or what did you have for breakfast? And you feel free to improvise, but what was your answer, roughly? Well, it was a sound check, so I was allowing myself a certain embellishment. But yeah, I was just relating how I had a couple of um, partridges, um, um, a few sausages, um, some seven, salmon. Seven kippers, um, kippers, I think they were. There were, there were kippers. Yeah, there, were, there, were, there, were, there were peat-smoked kippers. Uh, four boiled eggs and two poached eggs, that kind of thing. Yeah, was, well, uh, I, I can't. I actually don't know the English king, but um, but I had a friend who uh, uh, is an amazing friend. still a friend who uh, occasionally at breakfast used to sort of chuckle unaccountably, and, and I'd be like, you know, well, what are you talking about? And he'd be like, oh, I'm just thinking about what you know Henry the Sixth had for breakfast every day. <laughs> and I, I should I know I should give some background for folks who may not realize that uh, you and I first connected several years ago, and you were tremendously helpful with the Four Hour Chef, since that was a a book about accelerated learning disguised as a cookbook, which surprise surprise ended up being very very confusing to almost everybody in the universe who came across it. But <laughs> the there were aspects of it, including uh, chapters focused on mnemonic devices and uh, other types of, of memory techniques where you were incredibly helpful. So first of all, thank you very much for that. Um, oh, my pleasure. And I was having trouble piecing together how we first came in contact. How did we first meet? And I should also, just as context for folks, point out that Ed is in the UK. I am drinking highly caffeinated tea. He is drinking wine. And this is intended to be like a pub conversation. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so yeah. So please filter any interpretation of any remarks in the context of a, a of a ripe old English pub. Yeah. Uh, well, we came into contact through um, my dear friend Greg, uh, with whom I, I co-founded the company, um, and um, Greg was then a PhD student at Princeton, and I think you came That's to do a couple right. of talks. He got chatting with you, and it was through that that we met. Yeah. That's right. And so, uh, for those who are not familiar. Uh, Ed is co-founder and the office that he referred to is related to uh, his company Memrise, Memrise.com, which we'll come back to. And uh, the the concept of being a grandmaster of memory is not really a concept, the qualification. What is entailed 
in in becoming a grandmaster of memory? So, um, yeah, so, so I think for, I'll, I'll explain that first and then we can discuss a little bit um, just how stupid a term it is um, <laughs> and what a marvelous device for kind of, you know, either ending a conversation or beginning one at a bus stop. But, yeah, so um, Grandmaster of Memory, it's a kind of title given out by the, uh, the World Memory Sports Foundation. And, and basically you have to be able to remember um, a 1,000-digit number in an hour, a pack of cards in under a couple of minutes, and then 10 packs of shuffled cards in an hour so it's um so it's it's three parts of the world baby championships which determine uh whether you can get this title and um yeah i mean it's um it's a great title i mean i, I can't really other it's than, a very know, compelling it, title you know just like you know, the number of times you know i've been in the kind of losing situation in nightclub you know out danced um you know I, you know i'm not a symmetrical person tim um, and, uh, you know, sometimes my visual allure kind of understates the, the value of conversation with me. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, so this is sort of like, it's just, you know, just like, so what's your problem? It's like, sorry, I'm grandmaster of memory. It's like, okay, well, you know, let me buy you some champagne and then we can talk further about this important qualification. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a very silly concept, but, um, but you know, the, the, the kind of the cultural context, if you want, from which it emerges, namely people doing competitive memory competitions, I think is, awesome and fascinating because um uh because um in 1990 the world record for memorizing a shuffle deck of cards was 149 seconds Mm -hmm. which you know if you could memorize a pack of cards in under three minutes and show that to somebody they'd be fairly astounded and would think you were cheating and you know it's not obvious to anybody that the human mind would be capable of that um and i remember i was very proud um you know 10 years ago when i uh first broke a minute I, you know, I was like oh my goodness this is extraordinary anyway the world record now is 21 seconds wow for the memorization of a shuffle deck of 52 cards and you sort of think well obviously you know people presumably um haven't got like uh, four times faster brains than they did um um only 24 years ago but you know, the reason for it is is that there's been this competitive culture in which um there's an objective measure of mnemonic speed if you like and over the last ten, over the last sort of twenty years, people have, on each year, done their best to outgun their rivals in the memory scene, and then very openly and freely shared the techniques and hacks they've used to be able to optimize these, you know, fairly arbitrary but nonetheless kind of interesting processes of you know memorization. And, and the result has been an absolutely continuous linear increase in the amount of stuff people can remember across a very wide range of disciplines in a particular amount of time. So this is true of like names and faces, random strings of words, crazy like abstractly generated images, all the stuff people have been able to think up to test people's memories with. As a result of this community of competition and sharing, um, you know, people have got almost 10 times faster now in the course of 24 years at memorizing things when it was already very impressive in the first place. So... I think that's why it's an interesting thing. Yeah. Is that a function of prize money, prestige, social media? I'm very curious about the dynamic that has produced that progress because if you look at mixed martial arts, for instance, UFC, mm-hmm. and you look at the first 10 UFCs, compare that to, compare the competitors to the competitors, say, uh, 30 UFCs later, compare those competitors mm-hmm. with those of today. 
as the prize money has increased, among other things, I think it's primarily the prize money, uh, you see a very quick evolution in terms of whether it's selection bias or just a larger pool of competitors that has gone from, say, top 20% of athletes in the United States to top 10 to top two, and you're just looking mm-hmm. at, at mutants in many cases now, uh, not yeah. to, not to detract from their technique, not to, <laughs> to, not to diminish their yeah, not fine to, <laughs> you know, manners and yeah, like, right. general affable. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Not to, not to diminish their, their gentlemanly demeanor, uh, and technique and training, but is, what is, what is, what are the contributing factors to the, well, the, 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 the increases in, uh, in speed? And well, I mean, of the options, well, it, of the options you uh, offered up there, um, you, can, you can choose media. others. You can choose other ones. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly not social media. The, the total Twitter followers of uh, competitors in the World Memory Championships is, uh, yeah, twenty twenty five or something. But um, yeah, the um, and it's not money. There's no there's no real money on it. I, I think it's um, you know I, I would I would suppose that you know perhaps in a hundred years time, if people did still care the current state of memory sports would be considered still extraordinarily immature. Um, and so I think we're probably what, in what's the kind of, it's like cricket in the 19th century in England where people were kind of working out the basics of technique. Um, um, in that case, historically, I believe it was the invention of the steam train, which allowed cricket to get good because uh, teams from further apart in the country could visit each other um, the uh, uh, information and press was delivered, you know, uh, quicker. And so there was a sort of general um, increase in the talent pool who were competing with each other. And uh, and it was just possible to even travel and sort of compete. And it's a similar thing there. So, like, people from all over the world can do it. You know, it's easy to hop on a plane. So that, that's a contributing factor. Um, but I think fundamentally the motivation is um, that it's just so cool winning or doing well in the World Memory Championships. That it's purely, uh, it's purely a kind of um, slightly comic form of status, I think, which drives it, mm-hmm. as well as the fact that, of course, it's it's phenomenally interesting to um, take something which every single person there would never imagine they were capable of doing, and push it and push it and push it to to see how well it can be done. Um, and it probably helps that it's quite precisely quantifiable, you right. know, like the hundred meters or whatever else. And I wanted to I wanted to grab uh, something you mentioned and come back to it, which is what what the average person is capable of doing, or what most people are capable of doing. And uh, perhaps you could recount for folks the outcome of one of the experiments that that you and I did, uh, also involving your team, which was related to the four hour chef. So we wanted to incentivize people to try to memorize a shuffle deck of cards. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. And the outcome, because a lot of people listening will probably assume like a thousand digits. I could never even remember a phone number. I couldn't remember 20 numbers and they underestimate what they're capable of doing. So I would love if you could just perhaps recount the results of the experiment that we did related to the book launch. Yes, that was that was a fun, um, fun thing we did. So, yeah, we we, on on Memorize, we um, we launched a competition uh, with you, Tim. Uh, yeah, at the same time as the launch of the book, um, and you know, it was a ten thousand dollar prize. Um, I believe munificently uh, supplied by UTIP. Though, yep, that's right. Uh, I, I, uh, I spent it on. Uh, yeah, anyway. So um, 
So anyhow, so yeah, we, so we did this thing, um, and we had this um, this great engineer in the office called Tank who built this amazing system, which was basically um, a, a standard memorized course where you would um, learn to associate with each card in the deck um, a a person. And I'd actually propose like a group of fifty two people, but there were ways of of changing them to to be people uh, that you you wanted to have in your in your set of images. Uh, and the basic technique underlying this is that um, you know cards are boring and unmemorable, sequences are boring and unmemorable. How do you remember them? Well, you turn the cards into images which are more memorable. Uh, and so, for instance, Tim, you are slightly more memorable than the three of hearts, say. Um, because you have characteristics, you have a personality. I can imagine you in detail. I can imagine you interacting in situations. So you're inherently more interesting to my brain than a mere card or figure or um, or, or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, this is kind of an incredibly incoherent explanation, but I'll, I'll keep going. So um, I think it's, I think so, you're doing so, I think you're doing great. The assumption that I have personality is a bit of a stretch, but besides that, you're doing fine. <laughs> I didn't say that it was an adequate or admirable one. I just <laughs> said there was one. Um, anyway, so um, so you know the, the basics of, of memory techniques is that our minds love certain kinds of things. So we're very very good at remembering spaces. We're very very good at remembering. Um, uh, things which which attract our interest, and so you know, a, a rule of thumb I like to use is that um, anything which should grab your attention if you're wandering down the street is the kind of thing which will grab your attention in your memory. So you know, will something grey and um, written in legal language grab your attention if you're uh, walking down the street? No, but will a kind of a small elephant being attacked by lemurs attract your attention? Yes. You know, will a, a spectacular lissom naked woman attract your attention? Perhaps. Will um, a um, bollard do so? Probably not. And so it's the same thing when we kind of perceive within ourselves, which is to say when we remember, that the vivid, interesting, emotion-grabbing things. Uh, and again, Tim, I'd like to clarify that you don't evoke vivid emotions, particularly. I mean, I'm just taking you as an example. <laughs> anyway, uh, but anyway, so these things, these things grab our attention. So the art of memory is basically transforming information which is not interesting into forms of information which are interesting. And for a pack of cards, the technique which I, um, I use myself um, and which is very popular in the memory community is to take each card and then rote associate a person with it. And, and you know, if you go with personal association, you can do this very quickly. It takes like an afternoon for a normal person to associate with 52 cards, 52 people. And then having got that code, which is a bit like a language, really. Like you think of it as a language. So, you know, if I say hola to you, you'll say, oh, hi, Ed. And you've just learned an arbitrary association between some letters, hola, and um, a meaning, you know, hi there, sort of thing. Uh, and it's just like that with the cards. It's like, it's like a very, very small language, 52 words. And so when you're going through the cards, you, um, you imagine the, the people you've associated with the cards instead of the cards, and already it's massively more interesting. And the second thing you do to tackle the sequence, which is difficult to remember because it's just a bland sequence, is that you string these people who are standing in the cards into an amusing story. So you, uh, you might begin at your doorstep and you know, there's Tim Ferriss and he's, he's desperately uh, you know, trying to impress uh, the Queen. She's not impressed. And then slightly down the road, we've got like the Pope, and he's chatting with Ed Stoughton. And, and you know, these these people are standing in for cards, and because um, Tim's trying to impress the Queen, it's kind of funny. You know, kind of there's a kind of colonial, perverse humor vibe, <laughs> um, or whatever. And it's just more interesting than Three of Hearts, Seven of Spades kind of thing. 
Mm-hmm. Anyhow, so that's the basic technique. So going back to your original question, we, we put together a course on memorize, which helped people make these associations. And so that, you know, people would play on that for an hour and they build up this vocabulary of ways of thinking about cards. So they're just more interesting, more vivid, uh, so that they attract more emotion and so that they're just generally more memorable. And then, um, we proposed a technique very famous in the uh, memory kind of community, which is to sort of imagine them going around a space. And actually, for your blog, Tim, I remember embarrassing myself on my local street in a snowstorm, trying to wander around demonstrating how to place images in space. I was like, <laughs> oh, look up there. There's. You know, oh, I there's, remember that. Yeah, I remember a, that. I remember that very closely. Yeah. yeah so people, people would search for <laughs> Ed yeah. cook, cook, cook with the knee on the blog to find that video. Yeah. Uh, anyhow, so um, so we did the competition. Um, so people learn the technique and they could practice with this cool um, system on the on the website. And um, what was astonishing was that you know a few thousand people entered. You know, most people um, like basically couldn't be bothered and gave up quite quickly. But 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 basically, anyone who did persevere and actually just learn the images and then start practicing, um, many of them got really good, really really fast. And um, the girl who ended up winning it, um, who, whose name is Irina Zayats, she's a um, fabulous young lady, a programmer who, um, who uh, lives in the Ukraine. I tried to recruit her for memorize, actually. She was sort of only dimly interested. But anyway, she, um, she um, did it in about four days. <laughs> uh, so she just like sat on her computer and practiced a thing. And then within four days, I basically nailed it and could do it under a second. And, and then at the Memorized Christmas party um, that year, we, we piped her in live on Skype to prove that she could actually do it and wasn't cheating. And so there's a party of about 200 people crowding into the church, you know, and scenes of unbelievable debauchery, Tim. Uh, I, uh, I eyes, shake his eyes, 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 eyes wide shut. Uh, one of the yeah, well, yeah, it was the, yeah. yeah, it was that, but with better chat, you know, <laughs> in better lighting. Uh, Anyhow, um, yeah, and so she just nailed it again, live on Skype, um, under the pressure. We, we told her, I think, that that was how she could actually win the prize. And, um, and that's kind of a, just a nice example. You know, like, it's, um, it is very doable. And um, yeah. I, had a, I had a kind of another interesting experience with um, where I met a I, – I went to the U.S. Memory Championships, I think, in 2005 with, um, with my friend. <laughs> so so uh, this is a bit of a sort of diversion, but I'll tell the anecdote. So I, I got this friend called Lucas who's from Austria uh, and from Vienna who is um, uh, an absolutely hilarious and wonderful fellow who um, – before we'd done this, uh, we'd been contacted by Channel 4 and they were like, we're just interested to hear how, how memory athletes train. And um, I, I, I've always been a bit suspicious, to be honest, of the concept of sort of self-hacking. You know, I've never been quite, quite clear whether that's something I really want to do in my life. But anyway, so I, I, I said, well, you know, like, we like to go to high altitude and um, <laughs> go into complete seclusion. And I was kind of channeling an image of Ricky Hatton, the boxer, you know, going into the mountains and sort of going through some... Anyway, they were like awesome. <laughs> so anyway, Lucas and I, we headed up into the mountains. And we, um, we, we put on as a sort of comedy show, uh, and this can be found on YouTube actually, but a, um, a kind of image of what a mental athlete's training program would look like. Lots of sort of press-ups involving claps and um, competitive um, boxing-style mutual recitation of binary numbers and stuff. Anyhow, so um, it was, it's, it's, it's a kind of it's a minor, for, for the sort of 12 or 13 people who, um, in, your, in, in your listenership who, um, who think that um, 
Actually, well, fuck it. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to a, I'm going to an anecdote within an anecdote. I'm not going to follow. Okay, so, so we went to America and we, we went to the US Memory Championships, and um, it was it was quite hilarious. So so both of us um, at that point, non-American competitors were not really allowed to compete, but we were allowed to compete. And um, anyway, we came first and second by a margin of about times three because at that point the sport was not very well developed in the US, and. Um, Anyway, there was a journalist there, and he was like, oh, my God, you're a geek, you're a, uh, a savant, and the rest of it. And I was like, uh, no, mate, you know, we were, uh, were two young lads who've got an enthusiasm for memory techniques. And so he was like, well, then, but this is impossible. So and then I was like, no, 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 I'll, I'll train you. So, um, so I trained him for a year, and uh, he wound up the next year. And by the way, I'm a pretty brutal coach. It's a kind of a way of... Um, it's a way for me to transcend my in- own insufficiencies is to criticize others. And so, so I trained him up for a year. And, uh, yeah, he wound up winning the American Memory Championships. Um, and, um, yeah, and it was pretty cool. And he wrote a book about it. Um, that was Joshua, which, which Joshua he, Four. Correct. Uh, that's Josh. Yeah, that's Joshua Four, who's, yeah. Um, yeah, who's super cool. Moonwalking with Einstein. Uh, yeah, very, very uh... – Book did very, very well. Had a great piece in Wired that introduced me to that uh, as well. Um, but uh, sorry to interrupt. Not my, uh, oh, no, not no, my intention. No, no worries. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, brought, <laughs> brought everything to a standstill. I'm actually quite drunk now, by the way, Tim. I'm oh, perfect, sort of, um, perfect. Well, I, yeah. I, was, I, was, I, was, uh, I was taken aback by your, your sudden silence, which I mistook for, for uh, shy, yeah, no, shyness, no, but I think it's no, just no, drunkenness. No, uh, no, I was just sort of... Taking another slug on the on the, on the oh nice nice uh, nice nice to get you a camel uh, for our next podcast the the uh, so, so so the so just to put just to put things in perspective for folks with uh, it was Arena right the Ukrainian woman um, yeah so she she learned to memorize a a a shuffled or randomized deck of cards in less than a minute in four or five days uh, and the previous u.s record i guess a, a few years ago had been what 147 seconds or something along those lines um yeah it was- so she beat the u.s record with four to five days of training i mean granted it was an older record but i, I think that that just highlights what is possible for people and uh the 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 question i'd love to ask you is i mean what what are some some uh some perhaps if, if people have an afternoon and uh, they are not going to necessarily focus on the pack uh, of cards, is there something else that they can do to prove to themselves that they have greater uh, sort of mental athleticism or memorization potential than they've ever thought possible? Is there something else that they can do? They can make love to a beautiful woman in their imaginations without moving a muscle. Okay. Why would you recommend that? Um, well, that was a joke, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you got me. You're so dry. It's just, it's just dry British humor. We're we're still uh, dragging our knuckles so that, over that, here. that was actually just that was a straight straight out. Not that funny. Uh, but uh, I suppose, I suppose the, the, the tinkle of a thought which underlies every joke there. Uh, the tinkle of a thought which underlies the joke there is just the um, the really, um, imagination is um and our capacity to form images just while talking just while communicating mm-hmm. is um is already extraordinarily potent and and so I, you know uh, you know people wait, wait, so well, the thing which confuses people is like how can you possibly like form an image in a second 
which you then end up remembering five minutes later. Mm-hmm. And um, the example I'd like to give is that that's what happens in conversation the entire time. Yes. Mm. So, you know, if I say to you, um, I might just describe my office to you, Tim, and we'll actually test your memory. I know, I know that you're sort of um, getting on a bit and... Um, <laughs> I'm getting getting a little a little long in the yeah. tooth, yeah. A little bit, a little bit sort of uh, doddery, but um, but yeah. So if I describe the office, we've got a quite a colourful office. So I'm going to kind of I'm going to begin where I am, and in about um, 15 seconds, I'm going to describe to you the sequence of objects I'm going to see, and I'm going to make it a bit more vivid by imagining myself as an amusing character, kind of leaping around. So like, let's say that I am. Um, can you can you why don't you name the amusing character, Tim? Uh, using Mortimer. Mortimer. Okay, so I'm Mortimer, um, and I'm yattering into a laptop, and then I take the bottle of wine right by me, and I fling it into the wall where there's a picture of 25, I don't know what they are, but let's just say Yakuza in sort of jock straps and tattoos, Japanese men, um, or a picture of them on the wall, and then I jump around, and there there's, there's, there's a hammock, and in the hammock there are um, two lambs, um, this is not true, by the way, but anyway, two lambs eating cheese, um, and then you jump over the hammock, and then then suddenly there's a grand piano, and there's a young man playing Chopin, um, and he's uh, chopping away at the piano, um, and then move over, and there there's a swing. So he goes from the piano to the swing, there's Mortimer, and the swing is covered in pink roses, and if you kind of trace up the swing um, up the rope, you'll see that at the very top there is a, a model of a rhesus monkey just dangling from the top of the rope. Jumping back down, you land on the kitchen table where four people, four uh, unfortunate memorized employees, are just trying to sort of have a quiet evening in, um, you know, reflecting on the on the vicissitudes of life. But there, by the big arger, the big metal oven, and um, the the metal oven is emitting uh, heat. And on the arger, there is a pot full of um, spoons. Okay, so that was um, an incoherent narrative lasting about forty five seconds, I'm guessing, mm-hmm. uh, in which I. Uh, mentioned Mortimer's, Mortimer's little adventure. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, the first thing I'd say to your listenership is that just merely by listening to that, you followed it, you formed images at the speed of talk, which is, you know, one or two images a second, and you've strung that into a coherent mental concept or incoherent one, you know, I, I'm drunk, come on, calm down, guys. But anyway, you, you strung it into, into a coherent mental concept in a, in a spectacularly small number of seconds. I mean, it's absolutely phenomenal if you think yeah. that it's even possible to follow that. Uh, but anyhow, Tim, we're gonna we're gonna now gonna test you. So I'm on my laptop. Yeah. Mortimer's there, and he's looking at the laptop. What happens next? Uh, he grabs a a bottle of wine, which is right next to him, throws it into a picture on the wall, which has 25 yakuza and jockstraps with tattoos. Uh, and then uh, I'm having a bit of recency primacy here. And then um, yeah. af- after that, um, I want to say there are, two, there, are, there are two lambs in a hammock. That's correct, yeah. And uh, I don't recall eating, what they're yeah. eating. Yeah, that's what they, they're eating cheese, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And then, Very good. Uh, then jumping out of the hammock to a, uh, I believe it's piano after that. There's a gentleman very good. playing Chopin and chopping away at the keyboard, which was very clever of you to use the CH twice. That helped. Uh, and then, um, uh, then from there, we 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 get to a swing, which has mm-hmm. is covered in pink roses, and oddly enough, has a model of a rhesus monkey hanging at the very top of it. Yeah. Uh, and when Mortimer jumps off the swing, he lands on a, a kitchen table where there are four memorized employees just trying to go about their business, and it's very disruptive, quite obviously. Uh, and there is uh, then next to them a 
this is where I got tripped up a little bit. Um, the uh-huh. the auger on the stovetop. Yeah. I don't know what an auger is. Uh, uh, so so, the, but uh, so it, this is this fantastic. But, there, but there's a pot on top of whatever an auger is with spoons in it, and then that's the uh, that, the curtain falls, and that's the end of the Mortimer show, as I remember it. That's so so well done, Tim. So yeah, and just to sort of articulate what you've done there, so you've gone. Laptop bottle of wine, Yakuza, 25 of them, jock straps, so we're up to about six items. Hammock, lambs, cheese, piano, shop and chopping, swing, pink roses, recess, jumping off, landing, kitchen table, memorize employees. Arga, even though you didn't know what an Arga was, it is, by the way, um, this mother marvelous kind of European oven, which is basically a, um, a one-ton block of iron, permanently heated. Um, which acts as central heating and as a cooking mechanism, um, which is what, and, it, and on top of that, there was a pot with spoons. It says, you know, it, it's 20 things you've correctly remembered in sequence there, just really by dint of understanding human language, mm-hmm. which you have successfully uh, recounted in order. Um, and for that, the, uh, the narrative helps. But it just kind of gives, gives one an insight into how these aren't um, in the same way that, say, for instance, Firing an arrow through a um, a blackbird, you know, which is flying through the sky, is like a skill you almost have to learn, you know, on the on the top of basic motor skills. But you have to learn it very, very specifically. These sort of memory techniques draw from quite fundamental cognitive capacities. They're quite, you know, it's quite um, it's quite basic. And you know, I do this other thing where I, I kind of I do these things called memory walks, where you just get a bunch of random pedestrians, gather them together, and say, okay, we're going to learn whatever, you know, the US presidents, the first pharaohs of Egypt, what have you. And you just wander around a town for about an hour and you're like, oh, imagine, you know, George Washington there. I don't know who George Washington is. I'm English. Okay. Well, imagine George, the shark, washing himself tons. And they go, okay, very good. They imagine that in the window over there. And you can wander around and with no prior training whatsoever, you can sort of, I mean, unlock is too strong a word. You can just um, make use of the fairly phenomenal underlying kind of cognitive capacities that you have at your disposal all the time. So, so it's, it's, it's not a kind of elusive geek skill fundamentally. It's, it's basically just a kind of cunning use of what the human brain does best, namely process real meaning, imagine interesting things happening in space and, um, and kind of integrate narratives. I know. I, it's, it's something that I feel like, uh, and this, this actually touches on, uh, a, sort of a deeper, uh, I wouldn't say insecurity, but a conflict that I have, an inner conflict that I'm hoping you can help me resolve. Um, very, uh, I'm very, I'm very, I'm very indecisive about my sexuality. No, that's not it. Um, I wanted to, uh, sexually ambiguous. It's caused me a lot of strife. Uh, no, that's, that's also not it. The, the question is related <laughs> to utility of highly refining certain memory capabilities. So I, I, when I was uh-huh. in, when I was in college, I read uh, a number of books, uh, including, I think it's just called your memory and how to improve it. It's like the most generic, I yeah. think that's it. Higby, uh, most generic title imaginable for something that talks about vivid imagery. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I remember becoming very fascinated by memorizing numbers and, uh, mm-hmm. I might be getting the terminology wrong. Please correct me. Uh, if if I am, but the the sort of number consonant system where you're you're converting uh-huh. the numbers into consonants, you convert those into words into images, and that allows you to memorize long 
uh, long strings of, of digits. And I would, and I would place these images around typically my surroundings. And I think that might've been a weakness in my method. I would always use wherever I happened to be as opposed to a predetermined route. Uh, the, the only benefit to that method is that I, when I, when I would play this game with people and I would typically have them pull out a, uh, a five, uh, a single and a $20 bill. So I'd have them pull out bills of different denominations and I'd memorize the serial numbers on those different bills and then mm-hmm. we'll show you the center of the party tim <laughs> oh yeah it was it, it i wasn't fast enough to make it really exciting i was like okay cool yeah. give me five minutes and they're like what okay this is really boring um and, but what was really fun about it is i would memorize these numbers they would they'd be like oh wow it's amazing and then i would do them backwards oh my god that's amazing and then uh but it only took a, a really a week or two of practice to get to that point and i'm and i'm so confident that almost anyone can do that the what was fun about having the the loci i mean the, the locations dependent on where i was sitting at the time is that very often i could bump into that person a week later and say hey you still have that five or that single or that 20, I can, I can give you the serial number and I could remember it because I had so many distinct locations, which was kind of a fun trick. Yeah. Um, but the, it took a decent amount of effort to get good at that. And what I'm wondering is, uh, are, do you find that there are any particular mental exercises that have a high degree of carry over to other areas or that have more utility than others because there's there's so many different kind of party tricks that you could develop or competitive capabilities is if you had to pick one that you think people would get the most out of is is that even a, a possible is that a good question but i think about this because it does take time to sort of mm. main for me to maintain a high degree of proficiency with these things right um i, I think that i mean <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily recommend to, you know, anybody with um, a rounded social life to get too deep into <laughs> the uh, the number memorization stuff. But, I mean, for, for me, um, the, the interest in memory techniques kind of um, is, I guess, you know, emerges out of a much more general um, interest in consciousness and sort of... Um, yeah, the um, the curiosities of having a mind of the character that we have. And um, to the question, um, you know, what is the most generalizable, useful um, concept, not maybe requiring practice, that one can draw out of um, the, the theory and sort of history of memory techniques? I think... I'd give two answers. And the first is um, you remember things which ignite your imagination. Um, and we all know this in our hearts. You know, you know, if you're really into soccer or football, as we call it here, you know, you might be a, 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 a pathetic kid at school, but you might be able to remember something like, you know, if you actually added it up, 12,000 distinct football results, the equivalent of a kind of medical degree uh, in terms of scale of information. It's because you're interested. And so um, I think a lot of people um, are kind of embarrassed about uh, the characteristics of their mind, that, you know, about the things that they have a greater tendency to remember, uh, the things which they feel they need to do to really wrap their mind around a topic. And so the, the first thing would just be like the most, uh, the things which um, you find stimulating and interesting other things you'll remember and don't censor yourself in finding 
what those things are and allowing yourself to kind of uh, experience information in that way. Um, and so I'll try and make that concrete. You know, um, I think that um, a lot of people will be reading some nonfiction book about economics and it will sort of ignite in the back of their mind the idea that this is actually a bit like their friend Al um, and how he, uh, how he behaves with, with their mate Dan. Um, but it's actually officially about, you know, U.S.-China relations and, you know, that metaphor, that, that way of comprehending things, that very kind of personal, perhaps trivial um, manner of comprehending things through the filter of one's own experience gets suppressed, leading to kind of boredom and um, a, a lack of emotional engagement with the subject matter. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, uh, yeah. Just to say it succinctly, like just just back wherever your mind needs to go and endorse it and ignite interest through kind of imagination would be one thing. God, that's a very uh, unsuccinct uh, piece of advice. Uh, second thing is more succinct, uh, which is just that um, when two things are in the same place, either in your mind or on a diagram or um, in a semantic space, if you they will get confused with each other. Um, and, and I think the genius of the spatial techniques is the genius of having different contexts for different thoughts. And you touched upon this actually with, um, with your own um, adventures with five and $10 bills, which is that where thoughts, where experiences and thoughts are separated, um, they stand alone, they don't interfere, and they can, um, they can persist through time. But where they are um, sort of spatially connected in you know actual experience, or um, or spatially connected kind of within the mind, so where um, um, where where two concepts just feel very very similar, and you kind of when you're thinking about them, you kind of thinking about them in the same way. They will tend to fuse with each other and then fail to be distinct entities in their own right. So just literally separating stuff out in space is incredible as a general cognitive tip for brainstorming for resolving arguments for clarifying emotions in a relationship to you know anything and uh, you know because uh, because of this i i discovered some quite interesting thing about how to design house parties um so you know i used to have these um these moments where you know we'd you have an incredible house party you talk to 25 really interesting people it would be you know super thing at the time you're just flush with happiness and then the next day the whole thing would be in your mind it would just be a kind of a blur you'd just be like yeah I, I recall being in the kitchen and there were some people there and we chatted about stuff but but because all those kind of memories are on top of each other because of the spatial constraints of a house party you don't really remember all the things which happened and, and if you can sort of take a house party and this is true of any kind of experience it could be true of um an evening out with friends, it could be true with a, it's obviously true of road trips. Um, it could be true even of, um, of a friendship or a romance or anything else. If things are kind of spread out through space, if, if each kind of context or experience has its own place, then they can all live by themselves and you just get a much richer level of kind of autobiographic memory. Um, and so with house parties specifically, I kind of recommend, um, always having three or four phases to a house party. Uh, preferably with a different style, a different kind of music, um, a different fundamental focus spatially, um, and narrativize the transitions between them. So rather than just being like, there's a splurge of a house party and everyone's just getting drunk and trying to chat each other up, instead you have a kind of a phase where um, you're being quite posh and drinking champagne and, and listening to, um, you know, listening to French music. And then... Um, 
a bunch of people arrive and you're like, okay, we're now going to eat. And what's more, we're going to eat on one leg. And so you have a bunch of time hopping around, chewing on reindeer or whatever it is. And then uh, up onto the roof, it's a rave. And you've got a different thing. And so by, by creating a kind of artificial structure, you end up with, um, you end up with much richer experience. Um, um, and, uh, yeah, so that, that, that would be <laughs> – let's summarize you, Tim. Two pieces of advice are, like, um, make stuff vivid and personally interesting and don't censor yourself. And then if you are relating to anything, it could be learning or even just personal experience, um, find individual spaces for each thing um, because then they'll survive by themselves and not just kind of merge into the, um, into the kind of fog of, uh, of similarity. Right, blending together into indistinguishability. So th- that has uh, – it's funny when you, when you start to think of just the, the basic – programming that we have uh that of course has a lot of applications to dating as well uh and you you did mention something in passing i wanted to come back to which was clarifying your feelings about a relationship and i wanted to know how how you think about that because this is a pain point for a lot of people at different points in their lives or at least a source of anxiety how do you try to uh if this is even the objective find objectivity when clarifying your feelings about a relationship or maybe it's just getting a better understanding of your, of your own subjectivity but uh i, I wanted to, i wanted to kind of <laughs> dissect a minor challenge yeah. yeah i wanted to <laughs> i wanted to just unpack that a little bit so how would how do you think about clarifying feelings in a relationship it's, it's actually quite funny because um my girlfriend's called clara and your accent does sound clarifying. <laughs> so I, was like, I was like, I think about clarifying my relationship, my relationship with Clara. I, I'm not, not sure there's much more I can do. But, um, but anyway, so um, I mean, I, I'm definitely not, Tim, a uh, relationship guru. But I mean, I, I, I'm happy to freestyle on this subject because I think it is fascinating and it is a lot of, it's a big source of pain. And, you know, and it's also, it's, and it's not just romantic relationships. It's also, um, you know, creative and personal relationships and relationships with friends. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I've, uh, I've certainly sort of um, thought about this a bunch because one of the surprising features of adult life alongside, like, um, not being competent, as you always assume, you're going to become competent, whatever, uh, and um, uh, and the fact that sort of um, that you are actually going to become an adult, which is kind of you know obviously when you're 18, you know it's a pretty abstract thing, and you kind of you know aging is a kind of comic um, encounter with something you can conceptually deny with certain futility. But anyhow, so relationships be the other thing where you kind of um, where when you're looking at a person. You're, in some sense, you're experiencing the entire, or at least um, that person is the focus of and, and the undifferentiated focus of a whole, like, incredibly complex um, tissue of fundamentally distinct, you know, emotions and judgments and attitudes. Um, and so, you know, you find yourself in a relationship, you know, in, in an argument, say, and you're like, well, um, and you basically, you're, you, you come from an emotion. You come from an emotion, which is like, you probably don't perceive yourself. And you're thinking, like, I don't um, feel very happy about what's going on, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the tendency is to map that against basically whatever springs into your mind um, or whatever the person is is telling you or what the situation is. Uh, and so, you know, this is why, like, someone's late to a restaurant. 
and someone can go absolutely mental about it. And of course, it's got nothing to do with being late to the restaurant. It's part of a whole load of other stuff, which is not, not directly the same thing. Um, and so, <laughs> yeah, so for instance, I'll, I'll narrate um, an, an argument that, that I have had, which turned out to be um, amazingly stupid. Um, actually, I'm not sure, now I actually think about what this argument was about. <laughs> I'm not sure your timorous readers really want to, listeners, sorry, uh, uh, no, uh, no, really want to hear this, about this it. This is good. I want to uh, hear about it. So, um, so I had a, um, you're going to have to cut this out of the final recording because I'm just going to have to pause and just sort of, jumping to another topic. One of the fascinating things about language is that when you begin a sentence, even if you sort of have a, a intimation of how the sentence is going to end up, you've actually got no knowledge of where, what the sentence particular formulation is going to be. So you, as you initiate a sentence, you have kind of like, uh, oh, something interesting to be said with a particular kind of internal mental urge. And then the words begin to come out and you kind of shepherd it in a slightly chaotic fashion to the end of the piece of meaning you had implicitly wanted to emit at the beginning of the sentence, but which is not like consciously before your eyes at the beginning. It just kind of, it's like a seed which becomes a tree. The seed contains the tree, but the seed doesn't look like the tree or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, well, a similar thing with anecdotes. Um, you know, you, I think, oh, this is a really good anecdote. Best, best tell Tim about this anecdote. And then um, actually the anecdote is not actually before your eyes. And so I have to take a quick time out just to see where this anecdote is actually going to end up. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. <laughs> I can give you, if you'd like a uh, a respite or a, uh, yeah, a pause, so, yeah. Yeah. I can ask uh-huh. a few other, uh, and, this, and uh, I might forget to come back to it so we can also do that. Uh, but uh, I, I would like to come back to it, but I'm cute. I, could, I could hit you with a couple of rapid fire questions if that would take the pressure yeah. off. Okay. Yeah. When you think of the word successful, who is the first person who comes to mind and why? Um, so I think of the German poet Goethe, um, who, um, and so, but actually this is, this is good. This is a good topic. And, and I'm by the way, very happy to return to the previous one because, um, they're both interesting, but, um, but I, I, I'm quite suspicious of, um, um, the concept of merit, so, like, it seems to be like one of the guiding, if you like, philosophical assumptions of, um, you know, and, and I think actually, especially like Western American Californian um, culture, that merit is the correct thing to drive outcomes in humans' lives. So, you know, if you try hard and, you know, work your balls off and you're inherently really talented and you're not benefiting from, say, you know, inherited wealth or whatever, then the success and happiness and whatever else, which might supposedly emerge from that is justified. Um, and, um, and, and in fact, Tim, you know, you, um, you know, you write books in some sense and, you know, and you're, you're interested in, you develop the concept of improving as a person of, um, of finding kind of powers and talents and, um, and possibilities within yourself. And this is kind of an inherently attractive idea, right? And it's very difficult on the face of it to say, well, actually, you know, the, there's a problem with this, but uh, and I'm not saying not saying there is, but but you know, merit is kind of a fundamental assumption of of um, 
of goodness um, and the in merit our culture. Is asso- and the merit is associated with effort? I guess I just want to define um, uh, Well, so merit. I think the noble concept of merit is associated with effort. So it's like um, if you do something really incredible and you tried really hard, that that success is something you deserve. We, we right. think of that as like morally justifiable, um, which is kind of problematic for sociological reasons, but also problematic for kind of, uh, and the sociological reasons being <clears throat> some people have, you know, the opportunity and situation to express their talents kind of thing. But it's also uh, problematic because, you know, you just don't choose your merits. Um, and so you might say, okay, I don't choose my merits. Um, but actually I do choose them because I trained really hard and I learned about how to improve myself and I expressed discipline. But again, the underlying capacities which allowed you to find the time to train hard and control your discipline, these aren't things you choose. And, you know, and so, so, the, so almost all of our kind of um, our culture of admiration for people who do really well is based on this kind of implicit moral idea that people determine their own outcomes. But once you kind of begin digging into that, it's not really clear they, they, they do. Um, and the second part of that is, um, you know, what are the kind of categories and concepts with which we use to kind of determine merit? So like, um, you know, I'm always really struck by the fact that, um, that, um, that for instance, in our society, there are people who are, um, have a level of genius for, artistic expression and um, other things which aren't kind of commercially valued um, and therefore aren't really culturally valued except in extreme cases um, who are, you know, are earning like seven pounds an hour working in a cafe. Um, They have a mental world and range of learning and sophistication of perspective, you know, which is enormously rich and like obviously comparable with and in most cases, in many cases, like you know, superior to, according to a different perspective, someone who's like really good at coding and commands $200,000 a year and has high status and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, in that case, there's a kind of a, a kind of capitalistic, I guess, reason for ascribing merits to one person over, over another. Um, but, you know, you change the perspective even slightly and um, the merit flips completely. And so the, the, the whole kind of concept of merit... Um, does depend on these kind of background thoughts about about what is valuable, which is kind of often problematic. How would you um, flip the <laughs> How would you flip the perspective with the artistic barista versus the well, coder? Well, so one one example, one different paradigm would be like um, towards richness of experience. So, um, which um, you know, which people's mental lives would make for a better novel. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if that's uh, whatever. Or, or you could say like, you know, effect on the environment. You know, someone who's super dynamic and successful in the rest of it will tend to fly around and create capital and spend the capital and generally heat up the world economy, which will generally heat up the world and so on. And so, you know, we, we, we have no way of tracking the kind of externalities of human action, either um, in terms of karma, i.e. the emotions of the people who surround and come into contact with them, or in terms of, say, environmental impact, because we can't track them. And even if we could, we, uh, we might not. Um, we don't, so these aren't, these aren't metrics which we could, can tune into, right? Um, and because they're metrics we're not, we can't tune into, we just kind of assume they don't really exist. Um, and they, they have no real influence on, you know, 
um, a changes in behavior, but b you know what as a society or culture we find easy to admire. Um, so how did how did Goethe make you think of merit? <laughs> <laughs> just like Jesus, man! I'm just asking a simple question. And you've got a yattering on some sort of like half baked left wing nonsense. Okay, uh, well Goethe was just like um, I know you. Just, I know you hate Ayn Rand. That's fine. Um, what uh, do you think of Goethe? No, no. <laughs> so Goethe. Um, so Goethe's really cool. So he's like um, at the age of 25, he. Um, you know, as a teenager, he's sort of um, falling in love the entire time and writing poetry to his friends and so on. At the age of 25, he uh, writes a um, novel which kind of uh, is an ex- you know, extraordinary brilliance. It's called The Troubles of Young Werther. It's this wonderful uh, story of a young man who, um, who um, falls in love and um, it doesn't really work out so well. And as an aside, Goethe wrote this book by locking himself in a hotel room for three months, imagining his five best friends on different chairs and then discussing with his imaginary friends different possibilities of plot and so on and so forth, Um, which is an example, by the way, of that spatial separation I was talking about, which is to say that in one's own mind, one is somehow kind of inherently boxed in and constricted. And by like imagining in different spatial locations, different perspectives and then kind of iterating an idea or or um, or novel in this case through those perspectives. He was able to kind of give himself five perspectives, separate it out, and, uh, and give himself a kind of multidimensional playground for creating the work of art, which, by the way, is an awesome creative technique. Anyhow, so he does that, and then he starts writing, you know, the best poetry. He's already the best prose stylist in the history of the German language. And then... Um, there's this, like, Germany at that time was kind of bricked into lots of little kingdoms. He, was, he got appointed in, at the Weimar Republic as a kind of poet in residence, but then just got really interested in loads of other stuff. So he started, like, redirecting the construction of the canal system and doing various other stuff and, um, and doing lots of kind of inventive things. And so then he gets into um, um, basically administering uh, human affairs, and he becomes incredibly good at that. And then at the age of 39... Um, he basically falls in love for the first time, Trudy. Uh, or maybe that was slightly before. But anyhow, he just disappears one day. He's like, he's at this very prestigious, sort of important position. He's kind of like the mayor of Weimar, effectively. Uh, and then he just pisses off to Italy, just re- leaving a small note. And then um, basically runs around, you know, falls in love with lots of beautiful people, writes some of the best sort of sexual erotic poetry ever written. Meanwhile, he's becoming, you know, it comes back, becomes incredibly interested in, um, in Newton's theory of physics, which he thinks is appalling and like doesn't capture the mystery and beauty of color at all. So he writes a theory of color, um, which is still like, um, uh, an amazing fount of incredible goodness for philosophers and stuff about the phenomenology of color perception and how shade and context and meaning influenced the character of color. Um, and then meanwhile, he's writing Faust, you know, famous play, is the kind of greatest work. And he kind of completes that in his 50s, but, but hasn't lost energy at all and goes through like three or four totally different styles of poetry. Um, you know, and by the time he dies, the age of 82-ish, he um, has become really interested in Eastern culture. And, and did I forget to mention that he, he, he's got this deep aesthetic vision of 
um, of science and our relationship to nature and comes up with basically what's a theory of evolution um, and, 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 and like studies plants and human and, and, and he, there's this particular thing there which uh, at the time a justification for humans differences from the animals which I think was called the intermaximillary bone some random bone <laughs> in your jaw and you know it's amazing how we try and distinguish ourselves you know opposable thumbs language humor there's you know consciousness uh, intelligence uh, and at that point it was the intermaximillary bone and he actually did some dissections of animals and young humans to show that this bone was present in both it fuses later in life and therefore is not the basis you know and, and so therefore it can be missed but but humans and animals are fundamentally the same. And he talks about plants and, and, and the similarity of plant, um, the kind of efflorescence of a flower with the way the human cranium um, kind of bends around and links up with itself. And so he's kind of, he's just cool. He's like <laughs> expressive. He's incredibly independent. When Napoleon invades, um, I think he was living in Frankfurt at the time. When Napoleon invades Frankfurt, Everyone else was like sheltering in the houses and he was wandering the fields looking for evidence about the color pink for his theory of colors. It's totally kind of transcending the local <laughs> context. Um, and uh, anyway, so he's just interested in all this stuff. He's um, passionate and intuitive. Um, he is a genius, which helps. Um, but he produces a kind of a body of work and a set of perspectives, which... Um, which are just fundamentally life affirming and in a way which kind of carries through the ages. And so like I actually got into Goethe when I was on my, on my gap year, I was traveling around at the age of 18 in the world, which is what people in England do and between school, high school and university. And, um, in my coat, I just had Goethe's aphorisms, his short little thoughts in my pocket. And so I read and reread and reread this book. And it's actually had quite a fundamental perspective on my life because these are his like little snippets of wisdom on almost any imaginable topic um and all of them are brilliant you know it's things like the company of women is schooling in good manners or <laughs> boldness has genius power and magic or you know uh and then there were ones you don't remember in um in um their precise form but which nonetheless act as little micro filters for interpreting reality um and uh, anyway, so, so he's had kind of a big influence on me. I mean, one of his quotes actually is like uh, something along the lines of there is nothing so depressing as um, someone who is heroic um, being praised by somebody who isn't. Because when we praise people, we put ourselves on a level with them. Um, and so, <laughs> so I was actually just trying to think of like a quote which related to this situation. And so here I am praising Goethe. And actually, as I'm describing Goethe, I'm kind of channeling a bit of his general awesomeness and feeling a bit better about myself. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, anyways, so, anyways, so, uh, and by the way, just as a general concept, that, that phenomenon of how a memory can influence perception is the fundamental reason why I think it's still worth knowing things, even though we can look them up because, um, by looking everything up, we, give away and divest of the kind of central flow of our consciousness, genuine um, richness, <laughs> you know, because it's by having, you know, it's by being able to recognize the difference between 20 different birds 
that you don't just perceive a bird, you perceive ah, you know, a, a particular variety of bird. And what on earth is it doing around here at this time of year? It must be lost. Perhaps the migration pattern's been fucked up by global warming. Whatever. It, it turns like pure data into connection with a meaningful world. And that's kind of what memory does. And, um, and so, and that would be kind of my general justification for, for, for remembering things. Um, yeah. No, I like that. Uh, the, this is something that I, I also grapple with just as, as I strive to be the master of this tool that is technology and not the tool <laughs> of the master yeah, that yeah, is technology. Yeah. The, you mentioned two things about Goethe that I wanted to dig into a little bit. You mentioned, uh, passion and intuition and um you you can revise that but those are two of the characteristics of Goethe that you that you pulled out and one of the reasons that i i reached out to you uh very much at the 11th hour yesterday to see if you wanted to to chat and catch up and just record it because i thought it'd be fun for people to listen to is that i've been having a, i've been having a bit of a tough time with medical issues related to lyme disease and other things and uh have felt a little a little down a bit in a bit of a slump and i find that you are always you always strike me as very and and this could be an illusion so feel free to disabuse me of this notion but in a very excited very passionate very uh energized and i'm i'm wondering if that is something that you feel you've 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 always had intrinsically or if it's something you've developed and if if the latter and maybe it's a combination you know how do you strive to, to encourage that type of state, um, you know, what are, what are the things that contribute to your better moments? Those are a lot of fucking questions in one, but, uh, and I don't <laughs> have, I, I don't have, I don't have alcohol as an yeah. excuse, but yeah, no, well, I, I do for, for my sort of slowing nonsense at this end of the skeptical, but, um, well, first of all, sorry to hear about the, the medical stuff and the dip of, um, dip of enthusiasm. That's, um, undoubtedly tough. And, um, uh, second thing, um, no, I'm not always <laughs> really happy about stuff. I mean, I, I, it's funny, like doing a company has been um, an amazing journey uh, full of just like the highest highs and the most like execrable, horrifying lows, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, because it's sort of, uh, it's, you know, I guess it's just life really, but um Everything, you know, you start a company, everything turns, starts out, you know, like, oh, this is going to be absolutely incredible. You're going to do something amazing. Everyone's going to love it. And it's all going to be beautiful sort of thing. And then, um, and then it turns out to be just like a much more complex human process than that. And you have, um, you know, you have breakdowns in relationships with people you love and you have, um, decisions you make where you subsequently realize that they were the wrong decision and it caused a lot of people some pain and you have, um, successes which are wonderful, but which are compromised by the fact that they weren't what they should have been because I think anyway, so, so I, of course, like anybody else, like I'm, um, I'm, uh, a, uh, you know, I have, a <laughs> access to the full range of, of, of goodness and badness in human experience, obviously. Um, I, I am quite, keen on life though tim <laughs> like i do i do um and i and you can I do, sense that yeah so i'm i'm curious uh, I, I i don't know where that i mean because I, I mean I, I guess i i am i suppose it's also that i get my energy from the world and other people rather than internally like i'm 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 very kind of um uninterested generally in um 
supposedly scientific assessments of you know personality and and so on and so forth i i think that um the reductive impulse is um demeaning to humans <laughs> i'm also probably quite worried about what i discovered if i really looked into it but um but um but i am an extrovert and i did read one thing uh, in my studies of cognitive science which struck me as fascinating piece of self-knowledge which is that you know introverted people tend to have a much higher internal level of energy so that uh, proactive interactive in, uh, interaction with their environment isn't so necessary to keep them rewarded and interested and full of richness. And I am um, undoubtedly extroverted, so I absolutely love and gain huge energy from um, interacting with people and, and so on and so forth. Um, and so, so that's, that, that's kind of a personality thing. Um, regarding um, like passion... I guess it's um, this kind of might connect with a few interesting issues, but I think that um, that I suppose I'm I, I'm a dick, and so I hate doing things which bore me. Wait, did you and say I you're a basic, dick? Yeah, I mean, as in like okay. you know, almost everyone in life has to like <laughs> you know slop it up and just get on with things because things are great. But like I have a kind of quite visceral emotional reaction against being <laughs> bored. Right. And that does um and that does influence things. Uh, the other thing you touched upon there, which I think is such a good subject, is intuition. Mm. Because um the process of rationally justifying to yourself your action is incredibly slow, um, full of like grayness and complexity, and generally, um, like it's like um, it's sort of a five percent efficient process of moving forward in one's ideas and beliefs, um, because you know you're like ah. Oh, you know, we should really do this in the, you know, on Memorize or, you know, we should, or, or um, I think I, I, I think this girl is like the person I want to marry. But, and then you, if you allow rationality into this, um, you end up with like um, a situation where all the energy is going in the wrong place. It's like, but on the other hand, you know, is she, is she, you know, is she really going to get along with me in old age? And like, what kind of person am I really looking to like connect with? And yeah, and so you know, you could you could sort of double question yourself to death on, on most things. And when you know, when life is really, really good, one isn't like pissing around, like going, oh, I really, you know, like ah, oh, you know, is, you know, should I turn left or right out of the door today? You know, you, you end up as kind of existential boredom's ass stuck between a million possibilities and never really doing anything. Right. Whereas when things are going really well, you're just like, this feels right. Might be wrong. Don't give a shit. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> and that is so energetic. Uh, and this is actually something, I mean, I've, I, I've really had a journey in this within the, uh, within memoirs, uh, because, um, because, um, like my intention with it actually isn't at all with, um, with helping people remember more effectively, which, it's the kind of thing you might do to a computer chip or, you know, you know it's, it, that is a, a, an element in something much more interesting, which is like helping people feel like a genius or helping people love the world they're learning about or helping people just get pleasure out of 
their minds and the richness of their consciousness and learning. Um, and and the, one of the things about, like, as I think it's probably true in almost any profession, with a startup, you've got this thing where you're like, you've got the, the, the push and shove between what happens in one month's time and what happens in 12 months' time. And, um, and so a lot of the time you're like, well, um, yeah, this idea we've had would be absolutely incredible and would make people feel like geniuses. But on the other hand, it's not going to move any metrics for two months and it sounds a bit irresponsible and, <laughs> right. you know, whatever. Uh, and so in the early days, for instance, I had this idea that um, what we should, because, you know, we're fundamentally like a language learning site. Um, and I had this idea that we should all get on a bus, like a converted double-decker bus, and just go around Europe, you know, a lot of coders, designers, you know, the whole team, and just go on a fucking road trip around Europe. <laughs> and, and it would just be incredible. It would just be the best idea ever, sort of thing. Um, and, you know, we'd have learned so much about language, and it would have been an incredibly fun, diverse, interesting experience. Um, and it would have been a wonderful way of getting PR and the rest of it. But on the other hand, and this is where rationality came in, what the hell are you doing? You're supposed to be doing a startup. You're in a bus. You're driving around Europe. Um, where are you going to sleep? Um, exactly what function does this have for the product? You know, and so there's a million other things come in and you're like, well, and so that was, that was an example of where intuition was thwarted by a kind of banal kind of self-recriminating rationality resulting in, um, I'm almost certain, like a less interesting product and less fun. <laughs> now, look at, you bring up a really interesting uh, you bring up a really interesting set of questions, and this is this is something that uh, at, at times I do better with, at times I do more poorly with. But I've tried to, at various points in my life, um, make increase the speed with which I make decisions. So if a if a decision is reversible and uh, non fatal, <laughs> then uh, I yeah. find my life is generally much better when I just do exactly what you mentioned, which is like left, right, who gives a fuck? I'm going right. It'll be fine. And if it's not, I'll figure it out later. And making these types of reversible decisions as quickly as possible so that you don't have a lot of cognitive burden and you're not sort of stuck up your own ass all the time. Um, but in the case of the bus yeah, yeah, yeah. and the business, let's just say, or uh, how do you balance the in, the intuition, which at some at, at, at times can be an irrational exuberance, with yeah, the yeah. sort of pre prefrontal <laughs> cortex calculation. Yeah, yeah, well, that's, that's the question. That, 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 is, that is the question. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.